Our scripture reading, can you guys hear me? All right, our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, verses 18 to 25. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, now as we sit at your feet in celebration of this Advent season, we ask now that a text that has been so familiar and so easily recognized would be fresh and re- and renewing to us. <clears throat> Once again, Lord, your word is so deep and it is so profound to where even if we spent all of eternity channeling the depths, we could still never hit the rock bottom. And so, Father, we come eager once again to give for you to give us new insights to new encouragements, new power to live the life you've called us to live. And so, Father, once again, would you do that now <clears throat> and speak to the one who brings this message in spite of him. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, if there's anything that social media has revealed about human nature is that we are creatures who love to boast, who love to brag about ourselves. Am I right? We are people who by nature just like to show off, like to flaunt, like to boast in ourselves so that we can be acknowledged, that we can be admired, so that we can be awarded for whatever that may be. Undoubtedly, that is so true. But because that is so, you may be tempted to think that all this nauseating bragging is the result of things like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, right? Casting all blame on social media today. But I'm here to tell you that is absolutely wrong because this recurring issue of people boasting in themselves, bragging about themselves, has been with us since the beginning. Case in point, back in elementary school days, me and my friends used to play the game, the My Daddy Once game. Do you guys remember that, right? It's basically where you gather amongst your peers and you face an opponent and you start listing off all the impressive and amazing accomplishments your dad did, hoping it'd be superior to your opponent's dad's accomplishments and achievements so that if it was found that your dad was superior to your opponent's dad, that meant you were better than them. And one of the ways that you knew you would win the game is when your opponent resorted to saying such ridiculous, downright lies, something like, you know, my daddy once caught a bullet with his bare hands, or my daddy once dunked a basketball 10 feet in the air. And when you knew that uh, your opponent had to resort to downright lying, you knew you would win the game. Now, you would imagine that such silliness would have been long left behind us along with our elementary school days, but sad to say, that is not so. As adults, we're very much aware that where you come from, what family you're a part of, and who your father is can be a source of massive boasting or a source of massive shame. And it's that latter part that's really unfortunate. 
You know, I personally know people who have not been given the proper recognition, the proper respect that they rightfully deserve simply because of who their father is or was. And if you are a Christian, you know someone like that as well. Because one person who fits this description that I'm speaking of is the founder of your faith. Yeah. Did you know that Jesus Christ would never be able to win one round of the My Daddy Once game? Why? Because of the man that most people would have identified his daddy as, a man by the name of Joseph. We're finishing today our Advent or Christmas sermon series entitled The Fathers of Jesus, where we take a look at all the various earthly fathers that made up Jesus' lineage, Jesus' family tree, so that by taking a close look at their character, we could understand more about the meaning of Christmas and why we should be so grateful for it. And today we end this series with the father that most people would have identified Jesus with, the man who was his adopted father, married to his earthly mother, Mary, a man by the name of Joseph. And again, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you with regard to Joseph. First, we're going to talk about who Joseph was. Then we're going to talk about why we need to know Joseph. And then we're going to end it with how we can be like Joseph, who he was, why we need to know him, and how we can be like him. All right? Let's jump to the first point, who Joseph was. Now, truth be told, we actually don't know much about the adopted father of Jesus, which is so startling when you consider his counterpart, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because even to this day, billions upon billions of Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Orthodox, Lutherans will highly venerate Mary with such profound titles like, oh, the Queen Mother of God, the Mother of Jesus Christ, right? Even within our own Protestant Reformed tradition, we give her props for the unique placement that she has within the history of salvation. But when you look at Joseph, it's almost the complete opposite treatment. No fancy, exalting titles behind his name. No numerous books written about him throughout the history of the church like Mary. And even in the most sacred book, our holy scriptures, there's very little written about this guy. And when you do actually study the little that is written about him, it is downright startling and confusing. Let me tell you why. Go back to verse 20 of our passage and pay special attention to the title that the angel attaches to Joseph's name. What does he refer to Joseph as? He says, Joseph, son of David. Joseph, son of David. Now that David, according to Bible scholars, is the David, the most powerful, the most popular king that Israel ever had throughout its history. And by referring to Joseph as the son of David, Scripture tells us that Joseph comes from the royal family line. Yeah. And when you couple that to what it says about him in verse 19, namely that he was a just, or some translation puts it, a righteous man, we come to find that he's also <clears throat> a apparent heir to the throne of Israel. Because one of the things that the Bible makes clear, that any man who comes from the royal family line, can only be qualified to be the king over God's people if he was a righteous and just man. I draw your attention to Deuteronomy 17, where starting in verse 18, we read, When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he's above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands, even in the smallest way. 
with the very little written about Joseph, he had a lot going for him in terms of being potentially the most powerful, the most influential person in all of Israel. And because that is so, you may think that is why God chose him to be his adopted father when he came into the world as Jesus Christ. Sort of like piggybacking all of this great background, this great potential, this great royal lineage for Jesus to start off in living his life. But if you fast forward to the very last reference to Joseph in the gospel, you come to the shocking discovery of how Joseph ended up with his life. Take a listen to what it says in Matthew 13, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his own hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were so astonished and said, where did this guy, this man, get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took great offense at him. Okay, here's what's going on. Jesus is finally revealing himself to be the long-awaited king prophesied for thousands of years in Israel's history. He is, he claims, the Messiah. I am here. I am finally here for you. But here's the problem. His people, they don't buy it. They don't believe it. In fact, they take great offense to Jesus' claim as their king. Why? Verse 55, again, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? That carpenter who's not even dignified with being named is Joseph himself. That's right. A man who had the potential of being the most powerful, the most influential of all of Israel amounted to nothing more than being a nameless carpenter, which back in the ancient world was not a high achievement. Anyone could technically be a carpenter. It wasn't such a big deal. And when you realize this, I ask you the question, who was Joseph? We come to find he was that nameless nobody, the insignificant, unimportant, unqualified to be someone uh, seen of great stature or recognition to the point that when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, knowing that he was the son of Joseph, was a source of great offense to his own people. See, in many ways, Joseph discredited Jesus' rightful claim to be who he actually was. He was their king, but because he was the son of Joseph, people said, you offend me. Here's the question. Why would God choose Joseph as his adopted father, knowing that this would be the potential fallout? Why in the world would God choose to come into the life of Joseph's family, knowing that this would discredit his rightful claim for who he really is? Well, the answer leads me to my next point, why we need to know Joseph. So by now, I'm sure you've all heard about this great, great migration out of New York City that's been here even before the pandemic hit. Companies and corporations are leaving by the droves, and maybe you know a friend or two who took their families to what they perceive to be greener pastures, right? But here's the thing that you need to understand. In our city, normally throughout its past, people who grew up in New York tended to stay in New York, and people from other parts of the country, even all other parts of the world, would flock to the Big Apple more than any other city. Why? Well, I came across a pretty dated but still accurate 
uh, article that answers that question. It says this, the 10 most common reasons people move to New York City, quote, it takes true grit to live in this city. Rents are ridiculously high. Job searches are months long. But people move to the city because they want to face those challenges and overcome them. If you, make it if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. You want to be the envy of all your friends because you live in New York City. None of them have enough passion or determination or grit to make it here. You're more urban. You're more cultured. Whatever reason you may want to come up with to justify your superiority. When you live in New York City, you get the sense that history could happen any day here, and when it does, you want to be a part of it. You want to be able to say you were there, end quote. Here we read that the reason why used, people used to flock to this city all the time is because they felt that through this city they could capture status, significance, and success. The New York state of mind, as they sometimes refer to it. But you know, the Bible would say that it's more accurate to call it the human state of mind. Because this craving for success, this desire for status and significance is something every human being desires, not just New Yorkers. In fact, we see it in the Bible. I draw your attention to Genesis 11. We're starting in verse 1. We read, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Here we read our ancient ancestors building another city. Why? So they can make a name for themselves. In other words, here you have a group of people who want to be important, influential, prominent, popular. And so they create an urban center where their centerpiece of it is a huge high tower that reaches up into the sky, into the heavens. Now, we modern people read this and we're like, what in the world is this about? Why would ancient people think that if you could build a high-rise building, that that would mean that you have status, that you have significance, that you are, quote-unquote, successful? Well, if you think about it, it's not that hard to figure out. If you want to be seen by everyone, if you want to be noticed by all the people, you literally had to be at a higher elevation than them, right? If you wanted to be recognized by as many people as possible, you literally have to go up vertically. This is why kings, this is why emperors always built their palaces on tops of high peaks and valleys and mountains so that every person in that realm could easily point to and say, that is the most important person of all, evidenced by his high visibility, to be easily seen, easily noticed. See, in the ancient world, it's people who could build these high-rise towers. They're the ones who went viral. People today in our society go viral by building a massive social media presence. Back in the ancient world, people went viral by building a massive towering presence that reached into the sky. And one of the underlying assumptions by all this high-rise building is that as you get higher in elevation, the more elite, the more prestigious the eyes of those who can see you, including the most important person of all, God himself. And it's this underlying belief that our passage says, you need to know Joseph. You need to know Joseph. Why? Because remember, who is Joseph? He is that nameless nobody. The person who is so unaccomplished, who is so unimportant, and therefore so unqualified to be anyone of stature in the eyes of the world. And yet the fact that Jesus chose him the high honor of being his adopted father tells us something very profound. And you know what that is? It's basically this. 
You don't have to be great. You don't have to be noticed by everyone in order for the greatest one of all to notice you. Let me say that again. You don't have to be great. You don't have to be known by everyone in order for the greatest one of all to know you. And this is something that I feel we desperately need to hear in this time, in this age. Because as we live in this city or any city for that matter, that's always yelling at us, achieve, accomplish, acquire. We feel this mounting pressure thinking, oh, I got to do something great with my life. I have to do some great achievement, some great accomplishment. I need to get all eyes on me. I need to be noticed. I need to go viral. And yet the fact that Jesus chose Joseph, the nameless nobody, the high honor of being his earthly adopted dad, that's God's way of saying to all of us, hey, it's okay if you're like Joseph. In fact, God would even go further. You should aspire to be like him. Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, what I just said might offend your New York sensibilities because what it sounds like is that Christianity is a faith that encourages its followers to be a bunch of mediocre underachievers who make no contribution in this world. Is that what you're telling me, pastor, that your God tells followers of his to be a bunch of unambitious, unmotivated wastes of space? Is that what you're saying? To which I would say, no, that's not what I'm saying. So what am I saying? Well, consider what it says in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 42. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. And after the celebration was over, they started from home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Here is the last reference of Joseph and Mary together as a couple. And what are they doing? They're doing what every normal parent does. They're looking for their kid. They're worrying about their kid. They're rebuking their kid, right? You see, there are some very unique and unusual things happening in this story that are really unrepeatable, but there's also a lot in here that any current parent can relate to, that any future parent will relate to, that any former parent can completely relate to and that's the whole point as Jesus is doing his amazing saving work from people dying from the devil being defeated through the cosmic renewal of the world as he's doing those astounding great work it's in the context of the normal boring mundane unseen moments of life let me say that again God does the greatest work of all in the most ordinary mundane unseen, unimpressive moments of life. Which means what? That means he can also, and he is, doing great things in your seemingly unimpressive, unimportant life. And because that is true, do you know what that means? It means you don't need to go through your midlife crisis. Fellas, don't buy that car. Don't start highlighting your tips like you did in college. Ladies, you don't need 
you know, to, to get that new ensemble to feel young again. You don't have to be envious or you don't have to be dreadful because that former college roommate of yours has over a million followers on TikTok or a million dollars in her bank account. You can be content. You can be at peace knowing that even though the world will say you're no one of significance, you know that your God says differently and that what he says is more accurate than what the world says. Do you get that? Of course you do. Because this is something that you've heard thousands of times throughout your Christian life. And yet even though you know it, you don't believe it. Evidenced by the fact that you're not content, Evidenced by the fact that you're worried that you've wasted your life. Evidenced by the fact that you're so envious of your former co-workers or your college roommates or your friends on social media. And you struggle with whether or not you've lived life the way that you thought you could be able to live. As you hear scripture telling us that we should aspire to be like Joseph. A big part of you says, no, I don't want to do that. That just makes me feel so inadequate. So here's the question. How do we overcome that? And how do we become ambitious to be like a nameless nobody? Well, that leads me to my final point, how we can be like Joseph. Read again verses 19 and 20 of our passage as we read. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So here we just read Joseph's plan to divorce Mary, a woman that he was prearranged to marry. And here's the thing that you need to understand in the ancient world, that when you were prearranged to marry someone, i.e. betrothed to them, you were considered in Jewish law legally married to them, which means the only way you could get out of following through with the betrothment is to actually get a legal divorce. Now, just like divorces today can get pretty ugly and nasty, it got ugly and nasty back then. In fact, it could get worse because in Jewish law, if it was found that the woman that you were betrothed to cheated on you, Jewish law would have permitted you in some cases to stone her to death and her lover. Okay, Now, Joseph, seeing that his betrothed wife was pregnant and knowing he did not make any contribution to that, he had that as an option, right? He had that as a possibility, but the text says he wanted to go a different route. He didn't want to go to the normal channels of divorce, which would have been very public and very dangerous for Mary. Instead, the text says he wanted to divorce her quietly, which basically means he wanted to divorce her in secret to where no one would know but just them. Okay? But here's the thing about what Joseph is doing here and what's very astounding. The text says that he didn't share this information with anyone. No. This was all only confined within the secret hidden confines of his mind. Because look at what it says. It says he resolved to divorce her. He considered these things. He's only planning it out in the inner realms of his mind that no one has any access to of figuring out. Well, except for one person. Because who shows up to confront Joseph while he was secretly thinking in the hidden, inaccessible realms of his inner mind? an angel of God, a messenger of God. How in the world did they find out? Because God knew. God knew what was going on in the hidden secret places that no one has, has access to. Let me ask you, how would you feel if you were Joseph at this moment? How would you feel to know that God knows 
every hidden thought, every secret desire, every inner motivation that goes on inside of you. Would you be shocked? Would you be surprised? Would you be scared? You know, we freak out with the idea of Google knowing all of our internet searches. We freak out about the government knowing our every move. And yet scripture says that God knows things about you that Google and the government could only dream of knowing but can never possibly know. God knows everything that goes inside, even the things that no one else knows about but you. I would imagine that if you were Joseph, you'd be freaking out, you'd be worried, you'd be scared, you'd be downright filled with dread. But surprisingly, Joseph himself didn't feel that way at all. Why? Because of what it says in verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Here Jesus is informed by the angel that Jesus is going to come into the world, and those who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior will be completely forgiven of their sins and be spared from the condemnation of their sins. And because Joseph knew this, he understood the kind of person God is. Who is God? According to Joseph, he is someone who was fundamentally for Joseph, not against him. He is a person who is always consistently wanting to love Joseph, be merciful to Joseph, to be kind to Joseph, to give mercy whenever he needs it. You see, even though Joseph was aware that God knew things about him, every secret thought, every hidden motivation, every inner desire that by nature is so shocking, so shameful, so perverted, so ugly, so dark, so weird, so sinister, he knows that God is not going to treat him the way the world would treat him if they found out about those things about him. You know, canceling him, condemning him, casting him away from social relationships. No, he knows that even though God knows everything about him that would be so degrading and debilitating to where he should be a nameless nobody, God instead responds with forgiveness of his sins, the power to change from the inside out, and the hope of one day spending eternal fellowship, loving fellowship with the greatest one of all who happens to know his name. Did you guys catch the fact that when the angel introduced himself, he didn't say, you, betrothed to Mary, you, carpenter from Judea. What's your name again? He says, Joseph. Joseph. The person who no one knew the name of, God knew very intimately and knew very well. And because of that, you, with that knowledge, you can aspire to be like Joseph. Because even though you may feel like your life is pretty invisible, that your life has no recognition, your life makes you feel like a nameless nobody? As far as God is concerned, you're the complete opposite. Right? Because even though <coughs> there are things about you that would make you feel like you deserve to be cast away and to be forgotten, your God who knows everything about you still wants you in his life. And he wants you to share in his son's glory, to receive as co-heirs with him the exaltation that his son rightfully deserves because Jesus died on the cross as your substitute savior so that you could share in his glory, the glory of being loved by the father as he was loved by the father before the foundations of the world, John 17, you see? This is how you find peace and contentment of finding yourself in this big city 
totally unseen, unrecognized, and maybe a source of offense if you ever attempted to do more than what you are capable of, claiming things that other people would say, that ain't you. God says, that most certainly is you. Not because of any great thing that you've done, but because of the greatest thing that my son did for you so that you could benefit from him, that you would be seen by me, known by me, loved by me, and called by your name from me. When you have that assurance, when you have that understanding, now you can stop wasting your energy trying to get status, significance, and success from the applause of the world, and instead you can now do the normal, everyday, mundane, unseen things so that your great God can continue to do great things through you just as he did through Joseph. This is what God is trying to teach us by coming into the world as the son of Joseph. Do you grasp that? Do you get that? My hope and prayer is that you will never forget this, not only throughout the Christmas season, but throughout every season of your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we now have concluded this Advent sermon series, that we would ponder and reflect the significance of why you chose these men to be your earthly fathers, men that make up your family tree, the fathers of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the depths of insight and encouragement that we received by studying these men so that we would understand that we have a lot in common with them and therefore the hope, the joy, and the love that was theirs could also be ours. Father, I pray for every person in this room, especially who may feel that they have not yet amounted to what they hope uh, to have amounted to, that they have not yet built that high, towering presence before a watching world, but instead that they would be content to know that you have your eyes upon us, that your eyes of approval, your eyes of affection, your eyes of applause in us through your son is what gives us the strength what gives us the endurance and the focus that we need to raise our children, to live our normal lives, to work our pretty unimpressive jobs so that in our ordinariness, you can do extraordinary things in us, through us, and for us. Help us to never forget that, especially now, as we live in this crazy age that's always trying to clamor for attention. Let us be at peace and content because we have the attention of the greatest and the most important one of all. We have you. Help us to remember these things now and forevermore, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we certainly don't expect